Welcome to the Therapist Collective, where we explore the depths of the human mind and heart. I'm your host, Josh Keller, and I'm thrilled to embark on this transformative journey with you. In a world that can often feel disconnected, our mission here at the Therapist Collective is to inspire, connect, and help you grow. Each episode is carefully designed space where we delve into the complexities of the therapist experience, offer guidance, insights, information both personally and professionally. Whether you're seeking professional development, dealing with your own mindset challenges, or simply curious about how to build your career as a mental health provider, this podcast is for you. We believe that every individual has the power to create meaningful change in their lives, and together, we can unleash the immense potential that resides within us all. Throughout our journey, we'll be inviting experienced therapists, psychologists, and experts from various disciplines to share their wisdom, research, and perspectives. We'll explore a wide range of topics, including self-discovery, private practice startup, networking, mindfulness, continuing education, and so much more. But the Therapist Collective isn't just about expert advice. It's about the power of community. We'll be featuring stories of triumph, being real and authentic, and resilience from individuals like you who may have struggled through the labyrinth of life and emerged stronger on the other side. So, join us on this transformative journey of professional development as we navigate the realms of the mind and emotions, seeking growth, connection, and a deeper understanding of ourselves and others. Together, let's cultivate a community of compassionate providers, unleash our inner strength, and create a world where healing and growth are accessible to all. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have Jason Martin with me. Jason is an associate professor of counseling and clinical director in a KCREP accredited counselor training program. He also has a private practice in Belton, Texas, and he's currently serving as the president of the Texas Association of Marriage and Family Therapy. Uh, is active in professional advocacy, which is actually what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, He's been in practice for more than 20 years and has been a counselor educator for more than 10 years. His research and education interests include therapist training development and couples therapy. And and another side piece that he didn't put in his bio is Jason was actually my professional supervisor for uh, more years than I like to. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It took me a long time. That was harder on you than it was on me, for sure. You well, know, that, you're, that was, you're that was fun, but <laughs> yeah, no, I was really, I was really thankful to have uh, have you, especially since you're duly licensed as an LMFT and LPC. That was really, yeah, uh, a good thing for me at that time. So, okay, so you're you're the president of TAMFT, and you've been mm-hmm. in that role for. Uh, well, I'm I'm currently in the middle of my second year as president, and I served as president-elect for a year prior to that. So um, let's see. I So yeah, I've been president now for about 15 months and was president-elect a year before that. And I had been a board member uh, for TAMFT two years prior to that, I think, something along those lines. Okay. Gotcha. And and I'm sure that in that position, there's a lot of opportunities 
for advocacy and things like that. Oh, for sure. That I mean, that's the majority of what the job is, is advocating for and promoting the field of marriage and family therapy, both right. to the public as well as, you know, to the uh, to other professionals. Sure. So in the in the description of what you were wanting to talk about today, you, you mentioned the importance of professional advocacy and also removing the cultural stigma of therapy and mental health care. How do you see those two aligning or intersecting when it comes to advocacy and, and this stigma that, um, that we face? Well, I, I think that there is some, some relation. I actually think I may have identified those as two different topics, but we okay. can certainly cover them together. Um, there, you know, for, as you know, and as your listeners probably are aware, there has been this stigma about mental health for a long time, pretty much as long as we've had mental health care as a thing. Right. There's been a stigma about it. There is this sense that um, that it's a personal failing if you have mental health problems or emotional problems or relational problems uh, that is more... Um, that, that is more stigmatizing than if you have, like, say, a physical ailment. Right. You know? if, if you get, like, cancer or if you break a bone, you know, no one thinks, well, this means I'm lesser of a person because sure. of that. Or sure. that I'm a worse person than if I didn't have cancer or hadn't broken this bone. And yeah. yet that stigma seems to exist. Um, thankfully less so today than probably than definitely in, in years prior, but the stigma sure. still exists that I'm a lesser person. If I have mental problems or emotional problems or relational problems, I should be able to fix these things by myself. There's this yep. sense that if I need a therapy, if I need mental health care, then that means that I can't handle my problems by myself. Right. And I would go as far as to say that handling our problems by ourselves, even when it's possible, is usually not your best option. True. Or, or it's not always your best option. And that at any point in life, counseling, therapy, other forms of mental health care are, if not benefit or if not necessary, at least beneficial. Uh, and, and would be more efficient and more productive and healthier than simply trying to address it on your own. Much in the same way that, yeah, if I break my arm, I could put it, put my arm in a splint and I could make shift something to, uh, th that, that uh, stabilizes my arm. Um, and theoretically it may heal. Now, because I'm not a doctor, doctor of medicine because i'm not an orthopedist it there's a good likelihood it's not going to heal very well and it's going to be painful during that healing and after it's healed i'm going to have ongoing problems with that arm i could do it theoretically right but there are probably better ways more efficient ways and healthier ways to do it that an orthopedist would would know that I wouldn't, that they'd be able to do that I wouldn't be able to do. Sure. And that's where mental health care, that's where counseling and therapy come in, not even just for things severe, but even just, you know, let's say that I'm I'm in a job that it's not that I'm unhappy with, I'm just kind of in a malaise about, and I'm just not feeling very inspired or fulfilled by. 
well, that's not like a critical thing. And if I don't go to counseling for that, I'm, you know, it's probably not going to hurt me necessarily, but going to counseling could certainly help with that and could certainly serve a benefit. Yeah. So, so why do you think that, that people in general are more ashamed to discuss mental health issues than they are physical issues? It's, it's difficult to see it. And it's difficult for one person to perfectly relate to the the mental health experiences of another person. That's challenging. Like if I see someone with a broken arm, I immediately think, oh, that's got to hurt. And if I had that broken arm, like I can see and I can imagine myself with a broken arm and how hard that would be and how much pain that would be. I can imagine that. If I see someone struggling with, let's say, depression, I may not necessarily, uh, and maybe maybe if I've had depression, I can do this. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but it may be more difficult, especially for somebody who hasn't experienced depression, to have a sense of what that person is experiencing, what they're going through, exactly how difficult it really is. And so we look at that person and think, oh, it's not that bad. And we try to say, well, you know, you have a good family, you have a a nice house, you have a good job, you make a good living. Right. What do you have to be depressed about? Right. And we try to rationalize it and understand it through our own lens, not realizing that that's a a very different framework than what they are experiencing themselves. For sure. Yeah, it's it's really easy to to just say, well, just get yourself up out of bed. Right? Yeah. Why is that so yeah. hard for you to do? Just roll out of bed. Yeah. You, you're saying you're spending your whole day in bed. Well, don't do that. Don't Just do that. stop it. Right. <laughs> Just stop it yeah. like that. Like that old. Uh, yeah. Like the, the Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart. Yeah. 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 I love that one. I love that one. And so, you know, as, as therapists, obviously this is something that I would say most therapists would acknowledge. Yeah. We, there, you know, there's no need to have a stigma, but yeah. You know, I know a lot of therapists that wouldn't seek mental health, you know, care for themselves or, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in my past, when I've uh, sought this out, I've wanted to go, you know, to a, to a town 30 miles away, you know, just to avoid, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. seeing my peers and things like this. But how do you, how do you think that, that, I mean, do therapists contribute to this in any way? That this mm. That's a good question. Um, I think in some ways we do. Uh, even in the um, even in the best of intentions, I think we can contribute to it. Um, I don't think that we talk about our mental health care as much, like our personal experiences sure. in therapy. And right. I don't just mean with our our clients, although right. I I think that there are appropriate ways and times to disclose that to our clients if it would be therapeutically beneficial. Um, but but we don't we don't talk about that as much um, with others. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, we, we are not as good at practicing what we preach. You know, the things that we are encouraging our clients to do, we don't always do ourselves. And right. that's because it's hard and that's because it, it takes time and patience. And like everybody else, we are, we don't want to take that time and we are very impatient. And so I, I think that that, serves as some of the barrier. Um, But also, I think one of the things that we do is that, and I'm definitely guilty of this, is we don't, we don't necessarily speak the same language all the time of other people, you know, 
Yeah. Like we, we, um, you know, we'll use the, the terminology that we learned in graduate school uh, a little too freely with people who didn't go to graduate school for counseling or therapy. Right. Uh, I think that sometimes we, um, we may be able to see, and, and we do this with our clients sometimes, but I think we do it with our personal relationships a lot more. We may see kind of a potential solution to a problem and in helping someone with that problem devalue the emotional experience that they're having in the struggle. Does right. that make sense? Oh, totally. Totally. And so we, so we, we hear someone describing something they're going through and our therapist mind turns on and we are yeah. thinking about a treatment plan, so to speak, whether it's with a client or not, we're thinking about the treatment plan and, and we get pretty good at laying out, okay, here's the problem. Right. This is the goal. And I can see a path between point A and point B. Right. Whereas that can feel very invalidating to someone who is still wrestling with the raw emotion of the problem. Right. You know, and, and so even if we do that well and navigate that, that balance well in session, we don't always navigate it well outside of session in terms of, you know, talking with our friends and our family and acquaintances around these issues. And I think that to some degree that invalidation can contribute to the yeah. to the stigma as well. Yeah. No, I as you were sharing that, the other place where I, I think that I've experienced what you're talking about, I'm I'm a part of uh several different practice coaching groups. And one of the things that we do are we call them website teardowns, which sounds really horrible, but really we're looking at at how to improve our own like private practice websites. Um, and make them more attractive to, to clients. And in the process of doing these teardowns, you look at, uh, you kind of evaluate other people's uh, private practice pages and, and look at how clinical the language is in the website copy, like on the mm -hmm. homepage, the way that they're talking about uh, helping clients is a lot of times very clinical. And mm -hmm. I can see how somebody that's, you know, looking for help shows up on this page and just feels this disparity between, you know, what they know and how, how they understand their problem and what they're being told about their problem. Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of creates this divide, this, you know, expert, you know, yeah. type of feeling. Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. Selfishly. I like seeing that stuff on therapist websites. Cause when I go to a website, I'm not necessarily looking for a therapist for me. I'm looking like maybe for a referral for somebody. Oh, and, sure. okay. and as a therapist, I like seeing that stuff. I want to see, you know, I like seeing where people went to school. Not that that makes a huge difference, sure. but you know, if they went to school where I went to school or where I teach, you know, that, that, uh, helps me go, oh, okay, I recognize that. Yeah. But I do like hearing, you know, their models of therapy. However, while I understand what dialectical behavioral therapy is, if right. you have that listed on your webpage, the average client will not know what dialectical behavioral therapy is. Right. And it can sound a little intimidating and it can sound like, well, I don't know what that is. And I think the pharmaceutical companies have trained us that you know, there should be a commercial and I should be able to go into my doctor and ask for a specific kind of treatment. And if I don't know what dialectical behavioral therapy is, should I be asking for that? And right. I, I think that creates a little bit, I, I don't know if that's so much contributing to the stigma, but at least the barrier. Okay. To, yeah. To, that, to, that's a good way to say that. Yeah. 
So, so do you feel like as, as therapists, um, we have a responsibility when clients do come to us and we feel that they have this stigma against counseling. Um, mm-hmm. you know, to what degree do you feel like, you know, it's our responsibility to help coach them through removing that or to not be ashamed of it? Cause obviously they, they're concerned about their privacy and, Absolutely. you know, confidentiality is something that we, we have to uphold. So we can't really force them, you know, to, to broadcast about coming to, counseling we wouldn't want no no and i don't think that's necessary i mean who among us necessarily broadcasts going to the dentist when we do that so i don't know that we necessarily need to do that Uh, but i would like for clients to think of it almost like going to the dentist where you go periodically just for a checkup but you also may go when you have a an emergency or when you have a an acute problem to be addressed to answer your question i think the the biggest or the most important first task uh, for a therapist is earning the client's trust and building that trust. What goes along with that and, and maybe a secondary goal right after building trust is normalizing various experiences. So I'm whatever that experience may be, a lot of times clients come in and they are concerned that the problems they're experiencing are abnormal. And because they're abnormal, that is something problematic with them right. as a person. And I want to normalize. I, I want to identify, not like artificially so, and not in a way that is uh, that is disingenuous, but I want clients to see, hey, look, what you're experiencing, a lot of people experience. Right. What you are feeling, a lot of people are feeling. Now, you may be experiencing it and feeling it in a way that is unique to you. So I'm not saying that that you're just like everybody else, but that there's nothing inherently deficient in you because of this that you're experiencing. Because guess what? A lot of people do, maybe even to the point of being universal, you know. Um, and, And that goes with any problem that a client may come in with, whether it's depression or anxiety or parenting or relational uh, problems in a, in a couple's relationship, there's all sorts of normalization that can happen that says, you know, you are not deficient as a person because of this. In fact, this in, in some ways is what connects you to humanity. Right. I love that. And at the same time, I'm hearing all of my clients saying, yeah, but, <laughs> and they've got all of their own internal scripts that are, that are convincing them that. Right. And, and my counter argument to that is, but you don't know how those scripts, how those yeah, buts are expressing themselves in other people's lives. Sure. You don't even necessarily know how that might be expressing itself in my life right now, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, you you the way that that you may be experiencing your problems is in fact unique to you, but not in a qualitative better or worse way than someone else. Right. You know, and because we don't have access to other people's not just other people's mind, we don't have access to a hundred percent of other people's experiences. You know, you think about the person that you know the best in the entire world. You don't encounter them all the time every day right only in certain contexts right only in certain contexts so i i think about my wife 
my wife is probably the person I know the best out of anyone else in the world. Mm -hmm. And yet she spends, you know, uh, what, eight to 10 hours a day at her job. I spend a certain amount of time at my job. We connect in the evenings. We connect in the weekends. But the majority of our life together, we're actually not in the same, right. you know, uh, in, the, in the same zip code together, actually. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so that's not to say that I don't know her well. Right. But I don't know her perfectly. And I don't know her experiences the way that she knows those experiences. And then we think about that for literally anyone else that I don't know as well as my wife. And that amount of unknown just increases all the more. Right. And what I'm here to tell clients is that some of that unknown is self-doubt mm. that you may not see. It's their own insecurity that you may not see. It is some of their own failings, things where they've messed up and made mistakes that you may not see. Yeah. It's, you know, it's all of that kind of stuff. And so the fact that you're experiencing that doesn't mean you're any less because the other other people are experiencing it too to varying degrees. Sure. Do you feel like helping clients come to that realization and become more accepting of of their own mental health struggles? Do you feel like that's a necessary part of treatment? Yes. Because I think that people have to see themselves as inherently good. Right. And inherent they have to be able to see themselves as um, works in progress, mm -hmm. you know, like if I'm, if I'm painting a, an art piece, um, I, I, yeah, I'm going to have some critiques of it as I'm working on it, but I always have to keep in mind, this isn't finished. Right. I'm not done yet. This could still turn out to be a wonderful masterpiece. I don't know, mm -hmm. but I can't say definitively that it's not because it's still a work in progress. And that's how we have to see ourselves and our lives throughout our entire lives. We're a work in progress. There's not a, there's not a, a finished product that will ever happen right. uh, because we're always tweaking and growing and learning and changing and adapting, you sure. know? Sure. Well, I think too, just helping, helping clients well, and ourselves realize that, that, that that process is beautiful. Mm -hmm. in and of itself right just it, yeah it, it may be uncomfortable as hell but it's still a really wonderful you know journey you know of, of mm -hmm. discovery um yeah yeah the metaphor i use a lot of times with clients is a road trip mm -hmm. and not a road trip where you want to get there as fast as you can but a road trip where you may not have the best gps service and so you're going to meander a little bit and you may not even necessarily have a definitive destination in mind, maybe just more of a general direction, mm -hmm. but you're going to go on this road trip. You are going to have a much better time if you appreciate the journey sure. rather it. than focusing solely on the destination at the end. If you recognize and enjoy, you know, the little quirky roadside shop, if you uh, look for the, the you know the small town local diners and and uh the people that you might meet might meet there and the interesting food that you might have along the way yeah some of it's going to be not so great mm -hmm. and you may have some pretty bad experiences at one point or another but you're also going to have some amazing ones and if you're only focused on the destination you end up missing a lot of that yeah yeah 
you know, in, in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm just hearing these, like I mentioned earlier, these yes, buts and, and mm -hmm. I, I can hear one client in particular saying, you know, that's easy for you to say you're a therapist, mm -hmm. right? You help people with this process, right? You get to end the session and send them out the door. Um, I'm just curious, you know, how, how you feel like, you know, as therapists, we've gone through a lot of training to be able to, to have this outlook on life mm -hmm. that is pretty hopeful. I think, I don't think that we'd be therapists if we weren't hopeful about that, mm -hmm. but for, for people who just feel stuck. Yeah. That's yeah, more of a challenge. It is more of a challenge. And for those people, I'm not going to try to fix it for them. Right. Well, not just those, but for anybody, it's not my job to fix it. And and actually, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we can make is trying to fix that problem for people who are, in fact, stuck. Because as with anything, they have to decide that, that there comes a point where they have to uh, start looking for, okay, how do I get unstuck now? I'm looking for something action-oriented. But until they get to that point, it's not my job to force them into it. So again, I, I, if you haven't noticed, yeah. I, I work a lot with metaphors. And so sure. one metaphor I use for that is, you know, we encounter people along the road in, in session. And, uh, and maybe this person that I've encountered is stuck in a, a pit of mud and they can't get out. And they're sitting there and they're going, woe is me. I'm stuck in this mud. I can't believe how messy this is, how gross this is, how much I hate this. How did I ever end up here? And they're sitting there and they don't like it there, but you can't, you don't get the sense that they're really trying to get out quite yet. Well, if I go, hey, grab this stick, I'll pull you out. No, I. what's the use? I'm just going to get stuck again. Okay, well, uh, you know, buck up. It's not so bad. You know, it's not over your head. Your 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 you know your feet and your waist may be stuck, but you know your arms aren't stuck and your your head isn't stuck. So it's not so bad. But I am stuck. It feels very invalidating to them. To yeah. us, it may seem absurd. Well, if you're that miserable, do something about it. Right. But they have to be in a place mentally and emotionally where they're ready to do something about it. And so my solution to that is. I'm going to sit next to them and say, yeah, you're stuck. And that sucks. And I'm sorry that you're stuck. Yeah. And I'm I'm just going to sit here and be with you while you're stuck. And if there's something I can do to help, great. But if not, at least you won't be alone while right. you're stuck. Right. That's what they need in that moment. Sure. And, and what I found is that if I focus on that, just being, being present with someone, being empathetic to their situation, not trying to solve it for them, not trying to fix it for them, not trying to tell them, hey, here's what you need to do, but just sitting with them, being with them, and empathizing with them. What I find is that after a little bit, they say, I don't want to be stuck anymore. How do I get unstuck? Right. Okay, now we can start engaged in the change process. Yeah. But, yeah. The, but the reason for that is they need to trust that I care. Sure. And I don't think a lot of counselors or therapists take the time to consider the fact that yes, you care. Your client doesn't doesn't inherently trust that, you know, necessarily. Yeah, not yet, anyway. Yeah, 
yeah. they have to trust that. And sometimes the way that we earn that trust is just by sitting with them, empathizing with them, allowing them to emote and sure. saying, yeah, that does suck. I'm yeah. sorry you're having to go through that. Right. Well, and, and that's that's empathy. Like, Yeah, 100 yeah. percent. Empathy is the key. And, and uh, you know, occasionally I have students that don't quite understand that at first. That's right. <laughs> well, when they get to clinicals, they learn it in spades. They know oh, sure. that that's that's what they have to be doing. Right. Right. So for for people who kind of work through their their own stigmas against mm-hmm. seeking mental help, um, it seems to me that there's there's kind of this swinging pendulum that goes far the other direction where now people are being, in some cases, super transparent mm-hmm. about their mental health. And it's mm-hmm. it's becoming a very, uh, you know, opposite of, of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel it's possible for that pendulum to swing too wide the other direction? Uh, in terms of like sharing what's going on, no, I, I, I think the exception would be, you know, why, why are we sharing that? Right. You know, and and are we sharing it in order to put a billboard and like, look at me, look how wonderful I am for sharing all of this stuff and, Mm -hmm. and, oh, and, and, you know, praise me for how brave I am. Right. Okay. That's probably not a good reason to do it. That's probably (laughs) not a good motivation. Yeah. On the other hand, if people are sharing it in order to normalize it, in order to encourage other people to seek that out, I, I don't see that as anything but a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I was actually talking with a, a pastor recently, and they're they're mm-hmm. wanting to um, focus on kind of mental health in their community, which I thought was a really great emphasis for them. Sure. Uh, because what they're what they're seeing is that this readiness to talk about mental health is is creating a lot of opportunities for them, you know, mm-hmm. with the mission that they have in their in their church. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're seeing that shift and 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 just recognizing this is a little bit different. Whereas people mm-hmm. in the past weren't so apt to to reach out and and look for help. Now that now they are. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've seen that, you know, take place in a number of different areas. I know uh someone who I currently supervise, uh she she participated in a mental health awareness day at her church. And uh she was a, a guest speaker or a panelist or something like that. And the church reported that they had a lot more requests for for counseling. Um, not not from the, the staff necessarily, but from you know trained professionals. Right. So she ended up getting a number of referrals from that, and and I think it's from, I, I that's where I think normalization is a big part of this. Oh sure, where where there is becoming more of a critical mass of people who are seeing oh that person struggles with mental health or mm-hmm. that person has emotional difficulties yeah. or that couple is experience, you know, has experienced some relational distress, but yet they're still together and still love each other. Oh, wow. So maybe the fact that I'm feeling those things and that I'm, you know, struggling here or there, my, my marriage is, you know, not exactly what I want it to be in this way or in that way. Maybe that doesn't mean that I'm flawed. Maybe it just means that I'm normal, but I can still get help for it. Sure. 
yeah, it, it kind of infuses some hope, you know, right. If, if they can do it, I can do it too. Yeah. Yeah. That's really for great. sure. That's really great. So yeah, I'm kind of bringing this around to, to advocacy. Yeah. I, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. So as the president of TAMFT, I got into working with TAMFT and, and other professional associations I've been a part of because I've been become convicted that with in the idea that therapists really are the best people to advocate for therapy and that we have to do, there are a lot of different arenas in which we need to do that. Uh, now the, where TAMFT does a lot of that is uh, with, with the therapists themselves, just kind of bringing awareness to other therapists about the issues that we need to be concerned about and about the ways that we can either helpfully or sometimes unhelpfully try to advocate for the field. The other part is in legislature. Right. Uh, you know, our job is, or our license is a state regulated license. And what that means is people who don't have a license can't do what we do. Now that's a privilege but it's also a strong responsibility. Oh, so we have to make sure that the legislators who are making the laws that govern our, our uh, license and that the board members who, uh, you know, direct and, and regulate the license, that they have an understanding of, of what we can do, what we are trained to do, and, uh, and, and how we may be available to uh, help the general public. And making sure that they have a proper, uh, that they're properly informed about that. Yeah. Um, for a lot of therapists in Texas, uh, that became very prominently a part of the issue uh, a few years ago. I think it's been, oh, 12, maybe 13 years ago now that TMA, the Texas Medical Association, filed the lawsuit against the state licensing board saying that we could not diagnose. Right. Um, that was finally settled. Um, I think three or four years, four years ago now, I believe. Uh, and it was settled in our favor that yes, we can diagnose, yeah. but that was a, that was a, a really scary moment for a lot of us. Sure. And really the only people who were positioned to advocate for that were therapists. Yeah. We had to do that. The state licensure board was powerless to do that. What a lot of people don't realize is the licensure board is legally prohibited from lobbying for or against legislative change to the uh, to the statutes, they cannot do that. They're legally not allowed to do so I didn't know uh, because they work under the governor. And so, if there are any kind of changes, any kind of protections, uh, any kind of defense of our field that's going to happen, it has to be through people other than the board. And if it's not the board, who's it going to be? Well, it's going to be other therapists. And in our case, it needs to be TAMFT. Gotcha. So do you feel like there are any uh, statutes in place right now that need to be adjusted in any way that kind of serve to contribute to the, the stigma that we've been talking about? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm I'm definitely not the best person to ask that okay. question of. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, I serve as president, so I try to to stay abreast of of the big ticket items that are going on. But we have an entire legislative committee right. where that's where they live, and we have thankfully we have a wonderful, wonderful paid lobbyist mm -hmm. who knows about these issues. 
Uh, in terms of statutes that would help alleviate stigma, um, I think any statute, which there are some that exist, that do not allow therapists to work in specific areas. So I think uh, while therapists are allowed to work in schools, I don't think that, at least in Texas, there is enough of an initiative to get licensed therapists in schools. Yeah. I think that that would be one thing. Um, I think also kind of um, there are some statutes in on the books that are uh, that I think just generally misunderstand what therapy is and what it isn't. Um, you know, insurance can be a really good thing because insurance can pay for therapy a lot of times. Right. But I think too much of the statutes are geared towards insurance. And and this gets into kind of the entire healthcare system, right. which, you know, obviously has has problems well outside that of just those relating to therapy. But right. 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 Um, I think finding ways for people to be able to afford and access therapy that yeah. do not depend on insurance, I think that that would be a really good thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also bringing therapy more prominently into the workplace. Uh, oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm part of a task force uh, in Texas that is looking to better address the mental health care of police officers. And this was an initiative started by various police chiefs uh, throughout throughout the state, mm -hmm. who saw a uh, an, incre an alarmingly incre increasing rate of suicide among uh, active duty police officers, and saw a lot of mental health care, uh, and so they saw that there was a strong stigma within their own forces uh, around mental health care. And a lot of that was tied sometimes uh, understandably and sometimes maybe in, in misconceived ways because it was tied to job performance. And there was this fear that, that, it, would, that it would impact fitness for duty. Right. And and so what I've really appreciated about being on this task force is that they're looking for ways to normalize mental and emotional distress, especially in high stress um, jobs such as being a police officer yeah. and looking for ways to to destigmatize that in a way that that allows uh, people to seek help, allows officers to seek help without fearing that it's going to affect their job, without fearing that it will, you know, impact the way that other people see them or the respect that others may have for them. And, and I think that that's been a, a really, uh, I think there's some been, there have been some really good conversations about that. We haven't necessarily taken much action as a task force, but there've been some really good conversations. So I think in terms of statutes, um, anything that would open up the availability and normalize the therapeutic experience, especially yeah. in areas where it may have traditionally not necessarily been found. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's quite the task. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you think about, you know, not just police officers, but in other areas and, you know, sure. you and I here living so close to an army base, you know, mm -hmm. experience that a lot, um, yep. you know, from active duty. Um, well, and, and a lot of the soldiers that I know who that I've talked to about this, they say, you know, the army is, it, it gives, there are certain pockets where it's done really well, but on the whole, 
the military is really terrible about the mental health care of its soldiers. Yeah. Uh, like I said, there are some pockets where it sure. is done well, sure. but, but the, you know, the whole military system is not necessarily set up with that as a priority. No, not, not at all. And, and, uh, and that's challenging. And for re there are reasons for that, but sure. nevertheless, sure. it's sure. challenging. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, Jason, this has been really, really great. Uh, I'd be mm -hmm. really curious if, if you had just like 30 seconds to sit with a therapist who said, Hey, what, what do I need to do to really, if, if there was one thing that I could accomplish that would help with this, either mm -hmm. in, in terms of advocacy or destigmatizing, um, where would you direct them? Uh, like in terms of just taking on for themselves what they yeah. can do to address yeah, this problem professionally if they felt like man I'm, i want to do my part to to help mm -hmm. with this beyond you know working with my clients and, and helping yeah. them feel better um talk about your own mental health more openly and honestly mm -hmm. uh be be the person that you want other people to be um talk about it with your friends and your family your acquaintances of course you know we we don't want to disclose we don't need, necessarily need to disclose everything right right, right but right. talk about it um and when you experience challenging moments in your life seek out your own therapy that's a lot easier to do nowadays that we have teletherapy and telehealth uh that that you know, I don't, I don't want to see a lot of the people in my own community because I work with them. Sure. <laughs> I know them or friends with them. Yeah. But I, but I actually have seen a therapist uh, who's located in the Dallas area mm -hmm. um, because that's somebody I don't necessarily encounter very often and, right. and didn't know prior to that. So do your own therapy. Talk about your own therapy. Talk about your own mental health. Just be more vocal and open and honest and vulnerable about those yeah. things. Be it. that example. I love it. That's great advice. Thank you so much for joining me today. Sure. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Thanks Maybe for we'll, the invitation. Maybe we'll have you back another time. Yeah, I'd love that. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today on The Therapist Collective. We hope this episode has ignited a spark within you and left you with newfound inspiration, connection, and a sense of growth. Remember, the journey of professional discovery is an ongoing one. Take the insights and wisdom you've gained here and apply them to your life and career. Embrace the power of vulnerability, seek support when needed, and continue to cultivate a deep understanding of yourself and others. We'd love to hear from you, our incredible listeners. Share your thoughts, reflections, and stories with us through our website and social media platforms. Your experiences and insights can help create a ripple effect of transformation in our community. And finally, remember that growth is a collective endeavor. Together, we can create a world where mental health is prioritized, where empathy and understanding are the foundation of our interactions, and where each individual is empowered to embrace their true potential. Thank you for being part of the Therapist Collective. Until we meet again, continue to inspire, connect, and grow.